Hi, this is Stephen Sherry for Radio Spectrum. Batteries have come a long way. What used to power flashlights and toys, Timex watches and Sony Walkmans, are now found in everything from phones and laptops to cars and planes. Batteries all work the same. Chemical energy is converted to electrical energy by creating a flow of electrons from one material to another. That flow generates an electrical current. Yet batteries are also wildly different, both because the light bulb in a flashlight and the engine in a Tesla have different needs, and because battery technology keeps improving as researchers fiddle with every part of the system. The two chemistries that make up the anode and the cathode, the electrolyte, and how the ions pass through it from one to the other. A Chinese proverb says, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. The Christian Bible says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, a more engineering-oriented proverb would say, let's create a lab and develop techniques for measuring the efficacy of different fishing rods, which will help us develop different rods for different bodies of water and different species of fish. The Argonne National Laboratory is one such lab. There, under the leadership of Venkat Srivanasan, director of its collaborative Center for Energy Storage Science, a team of scientists has developed a quiver of techniques for precisely measuring the velocity and behavior of ions and comparing it to mathematical models of battery designs. Venkat is also a deputy director of Argonne's Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, a national program that looks beyond the current generation of lithium-ion batteries. He was previously a staff scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, wrote a popular blog, This Week in Batteries, and is my guest today via Teams. Venkat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. I always love talking about batteries, so it'd be great to have this conversation. Venkat, I gave about as simplistic a description of batteries as one could give. Maybe we could start with, what are the main battery types today, and why is one better than another for a given application? So, Steve, there are two kinds of batteries that uh, I think all of us use in our daily lives. One of them is a primary battery. These are the ones that you don't recharge. So a common one is something that you might be putting in your children's toys or something like that. The second, which I think is the one that is sort of powering everything that we think of, things like electric cars and grid storage, are rechargeable batteries. So these are the ones where, you know, we have to go back and charge them again. So let's talk a little bit more about rechargeable batteries. Uh, There are a number of them that uh, are sitting somewhere in the world. You have lead-acid batteries that are sitting in your car today. They've been sitting there for the last 30, 40 years where they're used to start the car for lighting the car up and the engine is not on. This is something that you know will continue to be in our cars for quite some time. We're also seeing lithium-ion batteries that are now powering the car itself. Instead of having internal combustion engine and gasoline, we're seeing you know, pure electric vehicles coming out that have uh, lithium-ion batteries in them. The third kind of battery that uh, we sort of don't see, but we have in different places are you know, nickel cadmium or nickel metal hydride batteries. These are kind of going away slowly, but the Toyota Prius is a great example of a nickel metal hydride battery. Many people still drive Priuses around. I have one, and that still has a nickel metal hydride battery in them. Uh, these are some of the classes of materials uh, that we are more common, but there are others like flow batteries that people haven't really probably thought about and uh, haven't seen, which is being researched quite a bit. There are companies that are trying to install flow batteries for good storage, which are also rechargeable batteries that are of a different type. 
the most prevalent of these is lithium ion. That's the chemistry that has completely changed electric vehicle transportation. It's changed the way we speak on our phones. The iPhone would not be possible if not for the lithium ion battery. It's the battery that has pretty much revolutionized uh, all of transportation. And it's the reason why the Nobel Prize two years ago uh, went to the lithium ion batteries, uh, the discovery and ultimately the commercialization of the technology. It's, it's because it's had such a wide impact. I, I gather that remarkably, we've designed all these different batteries and can power a cell phone for a full day and power a car from New York to Boston without fully understanding the chemistry involved. Uh, I'm going to offer a comparison, and I'd like you to say whether it's accurate or not. We developed vaccines for smallpox beginning in 1798. We ended smallpox as a threat to humanity, uh, all without understanding the actual mechanisms at the genetic level or even the cellular level by which the vaccine confers immunity. Uh, But the coronavirus vaccines we're now deploying were developed in record time because we were able to study the virus and how it interacts with human organs at those deeper levels. And the comparison here is that with these new techniques developed at Argonne and elsewhere, we can finally understand battery chemistry at the most fundamental level. That is absolutely correct. Uh, If you go back in time and ask yourself, what about the batteries like the lead acid batteries and the nickel cadmium batteries? Did we invent them in some systematic fashion? Well, I guess not. Certainly, once the materials were discovered, there was a lot of innovation that went into it using what was state-of-the-art techniques at that time to make them better and better and better. But to a large extent, the story that you just said about uh, the vaccines uh, with the smallpox is probably very similar to the kinds of things that were happening in batteries, the older chemistries. The world has changed now, right? If you look at uh, the kinds of things we're doing today, like you said, there are a variety of techniques, both experimental, but also mathematical, meaning uh, computer simulations have come to our aid. And now we're able to take a deeper understanding on how batteries behave and then use that to discover new materials, first maybe on a computer, but certainly in the lab at some point. So this is something that is also happening in the battery world. The kinds of innovations we're seeing now with COVID vaccines are the kinds of things we're seeing happen in the battery world in terms of discovering the next big uh, breakthrough. So I gather that the main technology you're using now is ultra-bright X-rays, and you're using it to come up with, for the first time, uh, the electrical current, something known as the transport number. Let's let's start with the X-rays. We used to cycle a battery up. Bad things used to happen to them. We then had to open up the battery and see what happened on the inside. And as you can imagine, right, when you open up a battery, you hope that nothing changes by the time you take it to your experimental technique of choice to look at what's happening on the inside. But oftentimes things change. So what you have inside the battery during its operation may not be the same as what you're probing when you open up the cell. So a trend that's been going on for some time now is to say, well, maybe we should be thinking about in situ operando methods, meaning inside the battery's environment during operation, trying to find more information in the cell. Typically, all battery people will do is they'll send a current into the battery and they'll measure the potential or vice versa. That's a common thing that's done. So what we are trying to do now is do one more thing on top of that. Can we probe something on the inside without opening up the cell. Where x-rays start coming into play is that because these are extremely powerful light, they can go through the battery casing, go into the cell, and you can actually start seeing things inside the battery itself during operando operation, meaning you can pass current, keep the battery in the environment you want it to be in, send the x-ray beam, and see what's happening on the inside. So this is a trend that we've been slowly exploring going back a decade. 
And in the, a decade ago, we probably were did not have the resolution to be able to see things at a very minute scale. So you know, we were seeing maybe a few tens of microns of what was happening in these in these batteries. Maybe we were measuring things once every minute or so. Uh, but we're slowly getting better and better. We're making the resolution you know tighter, meaning we can see smaller features, and we're trying to get the time resolution such that we can see things at a faster and faster time. So that trend is something that is going to is helping us, and will continue to help us make batteries better. Yeah, so if I could push my comparison a little further, we developed the COVID vaccines in record time and, and with stunning efficiency. I mean, the, the 95% effective right out of the gate. Will this new ability to look inside the battery while it's in operation, will this create new generations of better batteries in record time? That would be the hope. And I do want to bring in two aspects that are, I think work complementarily with each other. One is the X-ray techniques and related techniques like X-ray. So we should not forget that there are non-X-ray techniques also that kind of give us information that can be crucially important. But along with that, there has been this revolution in computing that has really come to the forefront in the last five to 10 years. What this computing revolution is that basically because you know computers are getting more and more powerful and you know, computing resources are getting cheaper, we're able to now start to calculate on computers all sorts of things. For example, we can calculate how much lithium can a material hold without actually having to go into the lab. And we can do this in a high throughput fashion, screen a variety of materials and start to see which of these looks the most promising. Similarly, we can do the same thing to ask, can we find ion conductors to find, say, solid state battery materials using the same techniques? Now, once you have these kinds of materials in play and you do them very, very fast using computers, you can start to think about how do you combine them with these X-ray techniques. So you could imagine that you're finding a a material on the computer, you try to synthesize them. And during the synthesis, you try to watch and see, are you making the material you were predicting? Or did something happen during synthesis where you were not able to make that particular material? And using this complementary way of looking at things, I think in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see this amazing acceleration of material discovery uh, between the computing and the X-ray sources and other techniques for experimental methods. We are going to see this incredible acceleration in terms of uh, finding new things. You know, the big trick in, in materials, and this is certainly true for battery materials, if you can find a thousand materials, maybe one of them looks interesting. So the job here is to cycle through those thousand as quickly as possible to find that one nugget that can be exciting. And so what we're seeing now with computing and with these x-rays is the ability to cycle through many materials very quickly so that we can start to pin down which of those, which of the one among those thousand looks the most promising so that we can spend a lot more resources and time on them. We've been relying on lithium ion for a Quite a while. It was first developed in 1985 and first used commercially by Sony in 1991. These batteries are somewhat infamous for occasionally exploding in phones and laptops and living rooms and on airplanes and even in the airplanes themselves in the case of the Boeing 787. Do you think this research will lead to safer batteries? Absolutely. The first thing I should clarify is that uh, the lithium ion from the 1990s is not the same lithium ion we use today. There have been many generations of materials that have changed over the time. They've gotten better. The energy density has actually gone up by a factor of three in those 25 years. And there's a chance that it's going to continue to go up by another factor of two in the next decade or so. 
The reality is that when we use the word lithium ion, we are actually talking about a variety of material classes that go into the uh, into the anodes, the cathodes, and the electrolytes that make up a lithium ion battery. So the first thing to kind of note is that these materials are changing continuously. What the new techniques are bringing is a way for us to push the boundaries of lithium ion, meaning there is still a lot of room left for lithium ion to get better. And these new techniques are allowing us to invent the next generation of cathode materials, anode materials, and electrolytes that could be used in these systems to continue to push on things like energy density, fast charge capability, cycle life. These are the kinds of big problems we are worried about. So these techniques are certainly going to allow us to get there. There is another important thing to think about for lithium ion, which is recyclability. I think it's becoming pretty clear that uh, as the market for batteries starts to go up, they're going to have a lot of batteries that are going to reach end of life at some stage. And we do not want to throw them away. We want to take out the precious metals in them, the ones that we really think are going to be useful for the next generation of batteries. And we want to make sure we dispose them in a very sort of a safe and uh, efficient manner for the environment. So I think that is also an area of R&D that's going to be enabled by these kinds of techniques. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, we are thinking hard about systems that go beyond lithium ion, things like uh, solid state batteries, things like magnesium based batteries. And uh, those kinds of chemistries, we really feel like taking these modern techniques and putting them in play is going to accelerate the developmental time frame. So, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, 1985 and 1991, lithium ion battery research started in the 1950s and 60s. And it's taken as many decades before we could get to a stage where Sony could actually go and commercialize it. We think we can accelerate the timeline pretty significantly for things like solid-state batteries or magnesium-based batteries because of all the modern techniques. A charging time is also a big area for potential improvement, especially in electric cars, uh, which still only have a driving range that maybe gets to 400 kilometers in practical terms. Will we be getting to the point where we can recharge in the time it takes to get a white chocolate gingerbread frappuccino at Starbucks? Yeah, that's the that's the dream. So uh, Argon actually leads a project for the Department of Energy working with multiple other national labs on enabling 10-minute charging of batteries. I will say that in the last two or three years, there's been tremendous progress in this area. Uh, instead of a 45-minute charge or a one-hour charge that you know was considered to be a fast charge, we now feel like there is a possibility of getting under 30 minutes of charging. Now, these still have to be proven out. They have to be implemented at a large scale. But more and more, as we learn, using these similar techniques, and I can say a little bit more about that, there is a lot of work happening at the Advanced Photon Source. Uh, looking at fast charging of batteries, trying to understand the phenomenon that is stopping us from charging very fast. These same techniques are allowing us to think about how to solve the problem. And I'll take a bet in the next five years, we'll start to look at 10-minute charging as something that is going to be possible. Uh, Three or four years ago, I would not have said that. But in the next five years, I think they're going to start saying, hey, you know, I think there are ways in which we can start to get to this kind of charging time. Uh, Certainly, it's a big challenge. Uh, It's not just a challenge in the battery side. It's a challenge in how are we going to get the electricity to reach the electric car. I mean, there's going to be a grid problem there. There's a lot of heat generation that happens in these systems. We've got to find a way to pull that out. So there's a lot of challenges uh, that we have to solve. But I think these techniques are slowly giving us answers to why is it a problem to begin with and allowing us to start to test various hypotheses to find ways to solve the problem. Uh, The last area where I think people are looking for dramatic improvement is uh, weight and bulk. It's important in our cell phones, and it's also important in electric cars. Yeah, absolutely. 
So frankly, it's not just in electric cars. At Argonne, we started to think about uh, light-duty vehicles, which is our passenger cars, but also heavy-duty vehicles, right? I mean, what happens when you start to think about trucking across the country, carrying a heavy payload? We are starting to think hard about electric aviation, about marine and rail. As you start to get to these kinds of applications, the energy density requirement goes up dramatically. I'll give you some numbers. Uh, if you look at today's lithium ion batteries at the pack level, the energy density is approximately 180 watt hours per kilogram, give or take. Uh, depending on the company, that could be a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but approximately 180 watt hours per kilogram. If you look at a 737 going across the country uh, or you know, a significant distance carrying a number of passengers, the kinds of energy density you would need is upwards of 800 watt hours per kilogram. So just to give you a sense for that, right? We said it's 180 for today's lithium ion. We're talking about four to five times the energy density of today's lithium ion before we can start to think about electric aviation. So energy density, both gravimetric and volumetric, is going to be extremely important in the future. Much of the R&D that we're doing is trying to discover materials that allow us to increase the energy density. Now, the, the hope is that you will increase energy density, you will make the battery charge very fast, you'll get them to last very long, all simultaneously. That tends to be a big deal. Uh, batteries are all about compromising between these different competing metrics, right? But, you know, cycle life, calendar life, cost, safety, performance, all of them tend to play against each other. But the big hope is that we are able to improve the energy density without compromising on these other metrics. That's kind of the big focus of the R&D that's going on worldwide, but certainly at Argonne. Uh, now, I gather there's also a sort of new business model for conducting this research, uh, a, a nonprofit organization that brings corporate and government and academic research all under one aegis. Uh, tell us about CalCharge. Yeah, if you kind of think about the battery world, um, and this is true for many of the sort of the hard technologies, the sort of the uh, clean tech or green tech, uh, as people have come to call them, there is a lot of innovation that is needed, which means, you know, lab R&D, the kinds of uh, techniques and models that we're talking about is crucially important. But it's also important for us to find a way to make them into a market, uh, meaning you have to be able to take that lab innovation, you've got to be able to manufacture them, you've got to get them in the hands of, uh, say, a car company that's going to test them and ultimately qualify them and then integrate them into the vehicle. So this is a long road to go from lab to market. And the traditional way we've thought about this is you will want to throw it across a fence, right? So say an Argonne National Lab invents something. And then we throw it across the fence to industry, and then you hope that industry takes it from there and they run with it and they sort of solve the problems. That tends to be an extremely inefficient process. That's because oftentimes where a national lab might stop is not enough for an industry to run with it. There are multiple problems that show up when you integrate these devices into the company's you know, existing other components. There are problems that show up when you get it up to manufacturing, when you start to get up to a larger scale. There are problems that show up when you make a pack with it. And oftentimes, the solution to these problems goes back to the material. So the fundamental principle that me and many others have started thinking about is you do not want to keep R&D, the manufacturing, and the market separate. You have to find a way to connect them up. And if you connect them up very closely, then the market starts to drive the R&D. The R&D innovation starts to get the people in the manufacturing world excited. And there is this close connection among all of these three things that makes things go faster and faster. 
We've seen this in other industries, and it certainly will be true in the battery world. So we've been trying very, very hard to kind of enable these kinds of what I would call public-private partnerships, ways in which we, the public, meaning the national lab systems, can start to interact with the private companies and find ways to move this along. So this is a concept that I think uh, me and a few others have been sort of thinking about for quite some time. Uh, before I moved to Argonne, I was at Lawrence Berkeley. And at Lawrence Berkeley, uh, there is a, in the, the San Francisco Bay Area has a very rich ecosystem of battery companies, especially startup battery companies. So uh, I created this entity called CalCharge, which was a way to connect up the local ecosystem in the San Francisco Bay Area to the national labs in the South area, this is Lawrence Berkeley, Slack, and uh, Sandia National Labs in Livermore. So those are the three that were connected. And the idea behind this is how do we take the sort of the national lab uh, facilities, the people, and the kind of the amazing brains that they have, and use them to start to solve some of the problems that industry is facing? And how do we take the IP that is sitting in the lab and how do we move them to market using these startups so that we can continuously work with each other, make sure that we don't have this valley of death as we've come to call them when we move from lab to market and try to accelerate that. I've been doing very similar things at Argonne in the last four years, uh, thinking hard about how do you do this, but more on a national scale. So we've been working closely with the Department of Energy, uh, working with uh, various entities, uh, both in the Chicago land area, but also in the wider U.S. community, to start to think about enabling these kinds of ecosystems where uh, national labs like ours and others across the country, there are, you know, there are 17 national labs, Department of Energy national labs, uh, maybe a dozen of them have expertise that can be used for the battery world. How do we connect them up? and the local universities that are in the different parts of the country with amazing expertise. How do you connect them up to these startups, the big companies, the manufacturers, the car companies that are coming in, but also the material companies, uh, companies that are providing lithium from a supply chain perspective. So uh, my dream is that we would have this big ecosystem of everybody talking to each other, finding ways to leverage each other, and ultimately making this technology something that can reach the market as quickly as possible. And right now, who is waiting on whom? Uh, is there enough new research that it's up to the corporations to do something with it? Or are they looking for specific improvements that uh, that they need to wait for you to make? All of the above. There is probably quite a bit of R&D that's going on that industry is not aware of. And that tends to be a big problem is that uh, there's a visibility problem when it comes to the kinds of things that are going on in the national labs and the academic world. There are things where we are not aware of the problems that industry is facing. And I think these kinds of uh, disconnects where sometimes the lack of awareness keeps things from happening fast is what we need to solve. And the more connections we have, the more interactions we have, the more conversations we have with each other, the exposure increases. And when the exposure increases, we have a better chance of being able to you know, solve these kinds of problems where the lack of information stops us from uh, kind of getting the kinds of innovation that we could get to. And at your end, at the research end, I gather one immediate improvement you're looking to make is the brightness of the x-rays. Is, is there anything else that we should look forward to? Yeah, there are a couple of things that I think are very important. Uh, the, the first one is the brightness of the x-rays. There's an upgrade that is coming up for the advanced photon source that's going to change the uh, sort of the uh, uh, the time resolution in which we can start to see the, uh, these batteries. So, you know, for example, when you're charging the batteries very fast, you can get data very quickly. Uh, so that's going to be super important. Uh, the second one is you can also start to think about seeing features that are even smaller than the kinds of features we see today. So that's the first big thing. 
The second thing that is connected to that is uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning is becoming something that is uh, permeating through all forms of research, including battery research. We use AI and uh, ML for all sorts of things. But one thing we've been thinking about is how do we connect up AI and ML to the kinds of X-ray techniques we've been using? So, for example, instead of uh, looking all over the battery to see if there is a problem, can we use signatures that are, you know of uh, where the problems could be occurring so that these machine learning tools can quickly go in and identify the, the spot where things could be going wrong so that you can spend uh, all your time and energy taking data at that particular spot so that, again, we're being very efficient with the time that we have to ensure that we're catching the problems we have to catch. So I think the next big thing that is going on is this whole artificial intelligence and machine learning that uh, is going to be integral for us in the battery discovery world. The last thing, which is an emerging trend, is what is called automated labs or self-driving labs. The idea behind this is that instead of a human being going in and uh, you know sort of synthesizing a material starting in the morning and finishing in the evening and then characterizing it the next day uh, and then finding out what happened to it and then going back and trying the next material, could we start to do this using robotics? Uh, this is something that's been a trend for a while now, but uh, where things are heading is that uh, more and more robots can start to do things that a human being could do. So you could imagine robots going in and synthesizing electrolyte molecules, uh, mixing them up, testing for their conductivity, and trying to see if the conductivity is higher than the one that you had before. If it's not, going back and iterating on finding a new molecule based on the previous results so that you can efficiently try to you know, sort of uh, find the answer for a higher conductivity electrolyte than the one that you have as your baseline. Robots work 24-7, uh, so it kind of makes it very, very useful for us to kind of think about these ways of innovating. Robots generate a lot of data, which we now know how to handle because of all the machine learning tools we've been developing in the last three, four, five years. So all of a sudden, the synergy, sort of the intersection between machine learning, the ability to you know, analyze a lot of data and robotics is starting to come into play. And I think we're going to see that that's going to open up uh, new ways to discover materials in a rapid fashion. Well, Vankat, if you uh, will forgive a rather obvious pun, the future of battery technology seems bright. And uh, I wish you and your colleagues at Argon and CalCharge uh, every success. Thank you for your role in this research and for being here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time you've taken to ask me these questions. We've been speaking with Venkat Srivanasan of Argon National Lab about a newfound ability to study batteries at the molecular level and about improvements that might result from it. Radio Spectrum is brought to you by IEEE Spectrum, the member magazine of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, a professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. This interview was recorded January 6th, 2021, using Adobe Audition and edited in Audacity. Our theme music is by Chad Crouch. You can subscribe to Radio Spectrum on the Spectrum website, where you can also sign up for alerts, or on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome your feedback on the web or in social media. For Radio Spectrum, I'm Stephen Sherry.